Once again, welcome to the Women on the Wall Communication Team Conference Call. It is so exciting to see the computer screen. I wish you could all see it because we've got folks from all across the country who are on this call tonight willing to step up, take time out of their evening to learn the facts behind what is actually happening in education in the United States. And we've got some incredible special guests. I want to, before I bring Jane Robbins with the American Principles Project on, for those folks in Texas, we've got a situation in Texas where things are happening. We've got an attorney general who has been indicted on fraud. And so there's a lot of people asking questions and um, trying to figure out, do we support Ken Paxton, the Attorney General? And I just want to, before we get on this call, because this is completely separate, and this is my personal opinion, and I just want to put it out there publicly, that I personally do not support the movement to back Ken Paxton. I feel it is very important to let the justice system run its course, but more importantly, whether that's even an issue if those fraud charges are, are real or not, when we talk tonight, one of the things that I think is so important to understand is we have a lot of elected officials on both sides of the political aisle who are very much for this push in digital learning. And one of the issues that I have with Attorney General Ken Paxton is that the company that he was getting investors for supplies the digital collection of our children's data, um, a collection of data, not necessarily our children's data, but the collection of data. And this is such a huge issue that we need to not only just get good people elected, we need to understand that we can't see them as rock stars and defend things that happened or legislation that they passed. And Ken Paxton authored legislation in Texas that brought in the high-performance consortium and high-performance standards that went around our Texas peaks, our Texas standards, that align with the philosophy and the progressive teaching strategies of Common Core. So I want wanted to put that out there publicly, and that has nothing to do with Jane Robbins, or I just wanted to address that first off. I know that there's a lot of folks asking those questions. In addition, and I'm only going to take a second to talk about this, for those folks who were friends with me on Facebook, on my Alice Lenahan personal Facebook wall, I have been reported to Facebook for impersonating actually myself. And so a lot of the closed Facebook groups that we have organized in the state of Texas are under that Alice Lenahan page, and I am working with Facebook to get that back up. I, that was actually reported by a group that has connections into Texas Freedom Network here in Texas that was started by Cecile Richards, the president of Planned Parenthood now. So I just want folks to know that if you were friends with me on Facebook under Alice Linehan, I do have another that's under Alice 
Huggins Lenahan. You're more than welcome to follow me there, and also we've got a public page set up. So I just wanted to let folks know about that. And with that, I am going to introduce our special guest. Jane, when I first met you, you came down to Texas in order to speak because we had a counter-conference to the PTA National Convention where Arnie Duncan was the keynote speaker. And the sessions that were at that conference, the, the National PTA sessions, were all about not only Common Core, but the push to get parents okay with the fact that their children's personal data was being collected in the name of education. And now, over a year later, since you gave your presentation, I go back and listen to that presentation, and it's like the lights are going off. Now it's all becoming clear to me. And I want to say thank you, one, for coming to Texas and for giving that presentation and for staying in the battle with us, but to also say this issue sometimes is so big that it takes some time to absorb um, what is actually happening. And different people are in different parts of the journey, if you will, in understanding this. So I just want to say thank you to you, Jane. And um, I want to give you an opportunity to introduce yourself to all of our callers and let them know a little bit about you, your background, and the, the great work that American Principles Project is doing. So are you there, Jane? Yes, I am. Let me just let you introduce yourself to everyone. Okay. Um, first of all, I'm a little disturbed to hear that you are a self-impersonator. I had no idea that... It puts a whole new cast on things. But anyway, that's interesting. I had never heard that, <laughs> that you were impersonating yourself. That's sort of odd. Uh, anyway, uh, yes, I have been working with um, American Principles Project for about five years. And um, we are an organization. Our office is in Washington. I'm in Georgia. And we are focused on restoring the country's founding principles in several different areas, and I work in the education area. And to restore founding principles in that area means that you return control and autonomy to the people who are supposed to have it under the Constitution, which is parents, localities, states, not the federal government. So this um, obviously got us involved in Common Core because that is a, a scheme that has sort of turned the constitutional structure on its head. So we've been working on that for a long time. And, and as you say, it, it does take a long time to absorb what's going on because you start out looking at these standards and why the standards aren't good. And that leads you to something else, and that leads you to something else, which leads to something else. And, and after a while, you're looking at this huge, huge web of, of agendas going on, and you're thinking, oh, my gosh, how did I not ever know this? But most people don't know it, and in fact, the official public officials who are being paid to make decisions about all of this don't really know it. So, so that's why calls like yours are so important to educate parents, especially about what's going on, so that they can raise the ruckus and maybe start educating some of the people who are making the decisions. Well, and and you're exactly right. It's it's interesting because when you look at all these different states 
and you look at, for example, Texas, a state that said no to the Common Core National Standards, but we have everything else. <laughs> and so it's almost like the illusion has been created that we're safe when, in fact, um, other legislation has been passed um, in our state and nationally that takes us down the same pathway, if you will, or to the same end goal as the Common Core. And let's start out, and I'm going to bring, before we dive into it, I, we have another guest. I want to bring in Erin Tuttle as well, who has done a great amount of research and has been in this battle as well as a mom. And let me let Erin introduce herself as well, and then we'll we'll take it all on. So, Erin, are you there? I am. Hi. Um, yeah, my name is Erin Tuttle, and I live in Indianapolis, Indiana. I co-founded a group called Hoosiers Against Common Core back in 2011 uh, with a fellow parent concerned about the Common Core, uh, Heather Croston. As she and I kind of put together a coalition within the state, and we fought to get legislation passed to repeal the Common Core. Um, you know, our efforts were successful in repealing it, but uh, as most people are aware, the replacement standards that they used to replace the Common Core happened to be the Common Core. So that's kind of my background that way. And, and recently I've been doing some research on different issues um, from ESA reauthorization to um, Title I and the waivers and just kind of keeping busy that way. And I also just walked in the door from an eight-hour car trip, so you'll have to kind of uh, give me a little lead way here because I'm just sort of getting back into reality. <laughs> I know that. <laughs> It's, it's amazing when you're, you know, as we all are moms and, you know, trying to understand and fight this battle, but we have real lives, too, and kids to take care of and <laughs> all that good stuff. Well, thank you so much. And um, well, let's start out. Jane, can you give us um, just kind of an overview of where we are, um, and, and feel free, Erin, to to jump in as well, um, where we are on the issue of the reauthorization of ESCA, which stands for Elementary and Secondary Education Act, um, which is also now known as the No Child Left Behind um, reauthorization. It is passed in the U.S. Senate and it is passed in the House. Um, and can you just give us an update on where we are now um, in that process to get, hopefully not getting that legislation uh, reauthorized, but where we are in the process? Okay. In the Senate, the bill is called the Every Child Achieves Act, and it's sponsored by Lamar Alexander and Patty Murray from Washington. Lamar Alexander, you may remember, was the Secretary of Education under, I think, the first Bush presidency. Um, and so that's the Senate. The House, it's called the Student Success Act. And the two bills are different. They're similar in some respects. They're different in other respects. So, so each body passed its respective bill, and so now the two bills have to go to a conference committee. 
to to iron out the differences, and then they would would come out with a version that uh, kind of incorporates what people really wanted out of both bills, and then that bill will have to be voted on by both houses again. So if your um, representative in the House or if your senator blew it the first time and voted yes when he should have voted no, he'll have a chance to redeem himself. But we don't know yet when the conference committee is going to to start. Um, What we've heard so far is that the the leadership has met and they have um, have decided that John Klein will chair the conference committee. He's the the uh, chairman of the House committee. He's from Minnesota, and so he will be the chairman of the conference committee. But then the the leadership appoints other people to the committee, and whether they've done that or not yet, we don't know. They haven't announced it if they have. Right now, of course, everybody's in the August recess, so um, so nothing is going on officially. But they they will put people on this committee, and Lamar Alexander had said originally that he wanted this to move fast and to to get something going um, early in September when they get back, because he's Lamar is determined to send the president a bill he will sign. So, um, in my view, any bill the president will sign is a bad bill and should be rejected. But that's not the way he looks at it. But we've also um, been told that there is so much else going on in Congress. Right now, when they get back from the recess, then they'll have appropriations to deal with. They'll have the Iran surrender deal to deal with. And so it could be a while before they get to to this um, conference committee. On the other hand, sometimes they tell us, oh, it's going to be a while, don't worry about it. And then we find out that tomorrow it's going to come up. So sometimes I think there's a little bit of this uh, strategizing going on that they hope that they can kind of spring it on people when they're not ready. So sometime in September is what we're looking at, but but right now um, we don't have the specifics on who's going to be on this conference committee. But right now is actually a very good time, and correct me if I'm wrong, while our um, congressmen and and U.S. Senators are home and in uh, recess, now's the time that we should be actively engaging them and educating them. Would you agree on that, Jane? Absolutely. You need to, um, if you possibly can, go see them while they're home. Uh, If they're having town hall meetings anywhere or they're speaking before the Rotary Club or whatever and uh, if, if there's any way that you can can get to them to talk to them, this is absolutely the time to do it because they are home now, and uh, you might not have another another opportunity. So definitely take advantage of this. And you know, if and I might just hop in one second, I would just like to say yeah. one of the things that we're suggesting to people is that you demand that they have a town hall specific to this bill. You know, it's the largest piece of federal education legislation. That will have that if passes would be the largest one in over a decade, you know something of that size and magnitude and the implications of this bill it, it deserves that they come home to their constituents and explain the bill, explain the pros and cons, and get the people's opinion before they go back and vote on it so that's what I would suggest that that the people demand that they come home and and do a town hall specific to the issue so that the people can understand it as they did with Obamacare. Um, right, it's the same. That's when people were able to express their opinions about that. 
Um, and, and this bill also, not only is it the, the largest education bill in a decade, if it passes, it will be in place for what, Erin, seven years? I think. Uh, yes, I believe so. Yeah, so um, so this is, if we get this thing, we're stuck with it for a long time. Seven years is a long time. So, so yeah, you know, um, try to get a, a town hall. And also, if and, you think about it, why are Republicans doing this right now? I mean, you know, why not wait until we know that we either will or will not have a Republican president in the next, you know, by after 2016? I mean, doesn't it make sense instead of, of appeasing Obama to give him a bill he will sign. Why not wait a couple, a year or so more and get a bill that we don't have to have his blessing on? It would be a much better bill. So Republicans need to answer for that as well. Why rush? That's a great point, Aaron. A great point. And let's start with you, Aaron, and then and then Jane follow up. Um, after reading the, both bills in the House and the Senate version, what would you say, Erin, as a mom, is the most concerning to you um, about about this legislation? What do what do moms and dads need to know? Well, that's hard. There's there's so much to choose from. Um, it's like picking your favorite <laughs> ice cream. <laughs> um, well, I would say that the one thing is that the testing remains. And the testing, as many people who are following these issues have realized, that it's the testing that holds all the other pieces together. You know, when states are not held accountable to the federal government um, for student scores on the state assessments that are required, um, when they're still held to those assessments, it really controls everything from the curriculum, teacher evaluations, school improvement plans, which schools are going to be identified for you know, sanctions from the state, but the assessments, the, the federally mandated assessments control almost everything in education. And with that remaining in both the House bill and in the Senate bill, you know, everything else is just kind of tinkering around the edges because everything really is based upon that. And and one thing that I'm, I'm trying to um, figure out and validate is the idea that if it goes to conference committee, Anything that is the same in both bills cannot be amended. So whatever bad there is in the House bill and whatever bad there is in the Senate bill, if it's the same for both bills, it will remain. So my concern is that whatever hopes any Republicans have in this conference committee and that something good will come out of it, I don't see how that can be because one of the things that parents are most opposed to are the federally mandated assessments. And this doesn't mean that you have to be against having some sort of accountability, but the accountability shouldn't be to the federal government through mandated assessments. The accountability should be to the parents, right? So your Title I funding, all the different kind of grants and other federal monies that are tied to ESEA, you know, shouldn't hinge upon a state's assessment, uh, upon a state's administering an assessment mandated by the federal government upon which you know, their schools are graded, their teachers are graded, and, and funding can be pulled if, if things aren't, um, if assessments are, you know, the schools do poorly or, you know, don't have 95% of participation on them, right? So that part in both bills is really, um, I think, the very worst part. And unfortunately, if I'm correct and what I've, if, if what I've heard is correct, 
um, that will remain the same regardless of what happens in conference committee. So to me, I think that is the worst part because if, if, if schools want to give an assessment, if the state of Indiana or the state of Texas says, you know what, we as a state are going to require schools to give an assessment and we want to be able to evaluate, you know, how the schools are doing, then they can do so. But it doesn't have to be part of ESCA legislation. So I know because a lot of times people will say, well, you just don't want, you know, you don't want teachers to be held accountable and we want accountability. You can have that kind of accountability, but you do it on the state level. It would be my right. advice. And when you, when we're talking about assessment and one of the dangers or the fears that, that I have as a mom, we're, we're seeing, and especially with kind of the battle that we're facing here in Texas, a, set, a state that said no to the Common Core, um, is that almost the opt-out movement um, of these assessments, these national assessments, um, or even the state assessments, is ushering in, which is what is even more dangerous, um, a shift away from, say, that end of course exam in math or history or whatever the class is, where it's a knowledge-based um, test on facts, it's shifting to these individual portfolios on a child where they're doing formative assessments where it's basically monitoring the attitudes, values, beliefs, and behaviors of the students. Am I, am I right on that? Is that a danger? And, and with the data collection of, um, that could be obtained through an individual portfolio, isn't that a danger? And feel free, Erin or Jane, to, to answer that. Um, yes, I, I think that you are right on that. The the problem, I mean, Erin is, is absolutely correct that the the testing issue is is still a huge problem in in both bills. And um, going one step further is that the bills, especially the Senate bill, are very prescriptive about what sorts of assessments the states have to give. It doesn't just say thou shalt test in grades whatever, whatever, and whatever. It says you shall test and you shall do it this way. Your test shall look like this, A, B, C, D, E. And the, 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 the elements that these assessments have to have are very dangerous. It's the kind of thing you were talking about. It's something called higher-order thinking skills. Your assessments have to measure higher-order thinking skills. And that sounds great, doesn't it? I mean, we all want to have higher-order thinking skills, we think, even though we're not quite sure what that means. But what that means in the testing context is that it's not an assessment on academic knowledge. It's not whether you know the subject matter. It's, it's analyzing your behavior in, in how you behave, when, how you react when you are given um, ambiguous information, you're being asked something to which there is no correct answer, um, do you do this? Do you do that? Do you hesitate? How long does it take you? That's the kind of test that is is being pushed and, in fact, required by these bills. 
Um, and the way these tests work is that they are computerized, and the software is very sophisticated. It is very sophisticated. And there are reports written by the U.S. Department of Education that talk about how fabulous all this is, that you can analyze how a child's brain is working if you use these kinds of tests, this kind of software. So, um, so the, the bills, both of them, specifically require this type of assessment. And the Senate bill also throws in that it has to be an assessment that is done with universal design for learning. And without getting into a lot of technicalities about that, that's essentially the, the same thing. It's got to be something that, um, that any student can, can use and, and that can analyze any student's performance and his reactions to things, they're not, they're not measuring academic knowledge with these tests that are required by these bills. They are measuring mindsets and behaviors and attitudes. And so if you, if you opt your child out of the test, which I, if I still had children in public school, my child, for example, would never take the smarter balance test. I don't care what they threatened me with. It would not happen. Um, but but if they end up not getting what they want out of the year-end tests, what they're going to do is say, okay, we're going to embed these these assessments into this digital learning curriculum that we use all the time in the school. And by the way, I was reading something about the company that your attorney general um, got in trouble because of his relationship with, and one thing that they that this company does is it creates these embedded assessment apps. Um, so that's the kind of thing. The, the idea ultimately is that we'll get rid of these year-end tests completely, and that way nobody will have a problem with it because the students will be tested and they won't even know it, and the parents won't even know it. But it's not going to be the kind of test that shows whether the child knows the material. It will be the kind of test showing whether the child has the correct worldview. Well, Erin, do you want to add anything to that before I ask my next question? Um, no, that's pretty much, I mean, that pretty much sums it up. I will say it is of interest that in the original uh, No Child Left Behind language, there was a prohibition against um, using assessments to um, monitor, to have questions on the assessment that would um, sort of survey the child's attitudes and beliefs, and they both bills took that out. So sometimes it's important not to look at what was added, but also what was taken out of the original legislation. And I think that in the Senate, surprisingly, they went to add it, went to add it back in, but it really shows the intent. You know, there is an, an there is a, there absolutely, it is the intent of those behind this legislation to allow for, you know, students to be tested to get some sort of results or analytics about their attitudes and beliefs. Yes, the, the um, Senate amendment, which actually was presented by Lamar Alexander, who clearly had been reading some of Aaron's research about all of this, and he offered the amendment um, to put back in that no child left behind language that you can't include items that will ask about attitudes. Um, but if you look at that language, it doesn't necessarily really prevent what it is we're concerned about because what they will say is, oh, we're not asking questions about people's attitudes. We're not asking you what you think about Second Amendment or anything like that. Um, it, it's all going to be just measuring your, your psychological behavior. 
So, so that amendment, um, I mean, I'm glad that it's back in. That at least gives us something to, to a hook to, to work with. But I don't think that amendment is going to stop what they're really doing because what they're really doing is embodied in the provisions that deal with the types of assessments that the states will be required to have. Right, and, and you know, if you think about it, Jane, they've also kind of redefined what it means to be academically prepared, right, to go on to college or yes. to go on to the workforce. And, and they deem that academically being able to communicate, being able to take on others by other people's ideas, you know, to be, you know, diverse in your thoughts are all actually important traits that signify whether somebody is or is not academically prepared. So they're sort of right. redefining what it means to be academically astute. That's right, yeah. It's, it's more important that you know how to collaborate than it is that you know anything about Shakespeare or calculus. <laughs> so you talk about well, nothing and, all day long. <laughs> and that kind of goes to one of the, the interesting things with all of these networks of, you know, state groups that are fighting back. I, I think that, for me personally, that's how I've also begun to understand the big picture of this web. And it really is, and correct me if I'm wrong, a, a shift away from a kindergarten through 12th grade system where children learn to read and write and do math and then they uh, and know history and then they graduate and they are free to go on to college or to go down a different, you know, pathway wherever their passion leads to this P20W system, a preschool through the workforce. And last night, uh, last night, last week on this conference call, we talked about another piece of legislation, the Higher Education Act, that actually Lamar Alexander mentioned when some of these amendments um, in the Senate version were, they were trying to get in and he said, no, that's really not for this legislation. That needs to be in the HEA, which we're going to get past next go-round. But it's that shift where it really is about um, controlling the, the workforce and it's about competency assess, assessments instead of academics. Am I right about that, Jane? Yes. Yep, you're exactly right. They are doing this on the K-12 level, and now through the federal pressure, they're doing it in higher education. And uh, some of the same um, gallery of rogues that have supported this whole Common Core scheme are now pouring money into transforming higher education as well. Bill Gates has spent, I don't know how many hundred million dollars on that, to, to change, we're changing the entire focus away from academics to workforce development. That is, is the key to it, that you don't want to over-educate someone. If, if a child is not going to be asked by his boss in his entry-level job anything about Paradise Lost, then why waste time on it now? So let's focus on just what you need for your job. Um, and if you focus on things like that, a, a happy byproduct of it is that everybody looks good. You know, you can get rid of the achievement gap because anybody, regardless of whether they have an aptitude for math or for English or writing or whatever, um, can collaborate well. So it will look like people are doing better than they actually are if you're measuring them under 
under academic um, standards and true academic standards. So, but but one thing that I think is important to point out is that we are really moving to a two-level, a two-tiered society here. Um, if you if you ask the elite private schools, the ones in New England and the one, for example, in Seattle where Bill Gates's children go to school, or Sidwell Friends in Washington, if you ask them, are you doing Common Core, they all say no. They're not doing Common Core. Why would anybody pay twenty, thirty thousand a year to get Common Core? Of course, they're not doing that. So the kids who come out of those schools will actually have an education, but the rest of us, the masses, will not. They will have the workforce development. We will be given enough, just what we need, um, to to get into the workforce. So, so you're going to have these people who are in the elite class who will be prepared for certain things in life, and then you'll have the rest of us uh, to be the worker bees. So that's, there are all kinds of motivations, I think, involved in this, um, but there's, there's much too much information out there uh, not to realize that this is, in fact, what's happening. Right, and if you think yeah. about if, like the Workforce um, Opportunity and Investment Act that passed Congress last year, it's all about marrying the education systems in different regions. Your state is broken up into regions, and then each region has a workforce development plan, and that plan has to be coordinated with your state's education plan. I mean, if ever there was, like, uh, the most unholy of marriages, it's the reauthorization of NCLB and the, they call it WIOA, Workforce Innovation and Opportunity Act of 2014. The marriage of those two pieces of legislation literally are creating a centrally planned workforce education system for the United States. And the similarities between the two different um, pieces of legislation and how they work together, it's, it's really something that anybody who claims to be a federalist, a conservative, should absolutely never, ever, ever support. And you should ask your politicians in your, in your areas about that because, you know, it, it truly is nothing to do with anything more than serving the, the needs of, of business. And it's not the business like a small business in your town. It's about serving the needs of very, very large corporations, multinational corporations. You know, they don't need a whole lot of really smart people. They just need a few people like that. What they want are people who know how to do the skills and the labor required for their business. And that is what that is, that is about. And isn't that model of a society proven over and over again to fail? <laughs> it's interesting to me like in a state like Texas that said no to these common core national standards, but then if you talk to um, education people and you ask what learning theories are you using or what um, the TASA, the Texas Association of School Administrators, that they've got this new Texas vision that they've been implementing and um, unfortunately, Ken Paxton authored 
one of the pieces of legislation to push us um, down this uh, new vision of education where it's using all of this new digital learning environment. But not only the technology, it's new learning standards. And it's this new assessments for learning and new accountability for learning and organizational transformation. It's, it's this whole vision and this shift to this controlled society. Um, and when you talk to, to people and they'll say, well, we're using the learning theories of Lev Vodotsky. Well, who's Lev Vodotsky and why are we using a Soviet uh, psychologist learning theories in the United States? What made the United States great is when you had a K through 12 system of education where people graduated and they could read and write and do math and they do history and they could go on to do great things. They were free. I just, it's, it's so crazy to me that more people aren't asking these questions. Erin, is it the same in your state just under the Common Core banner, or y'all got rid of the Common Core, but you oh, still it's got the it. same. It's the same. It's the same. Yeah, I really, truly, our our new quote unquote new standards. I mean, in some grades, they're ninety five percent the same. I mean, they rewarded a few things, but all of the Common Core is present in our new standards. And I think it's important. I mean, many states are the same. South Carolina, their rebrand of Common Core is the same. Because, like, I don't know exactly what the Texas standards look like, so I don't want to speak authoritatively on this. But, you know, if you have – you can have standards, and they could have a bunch of really great things in it that you really, really like. But if it also has everything within the Common Core in it, then your assessments will only cover that, right? So you can have a great set of standards on your books, but if your assessment is only covering a portion of those standards, it can very easily, you know, omit the good ones. Like, for example, the Common Core has a few standards in there about, you know, the U.S. Constitution and Shakespeare. But you know what? What, what I'm hearing from people is none of those types, none of those standards are covered on the assessment. So there is sort of this false impression if standards may have some, some great things in them, they won't be taught if they aren't on the assessment. So if you want to know what your schools are teaching, you really have to look at the assessment, which in most cases is not allowed to be seen by people, right? It is considered to be, um, you know, a privacy issue. It's, um, it's something, for example, one of our State Board of Ed members, she's a teacher, um, and she asked if she could take the sixth grade English test that was just administered this past spring in Indiana. She was told no. They said it's a confidentiality thing. She said, I'll sign any sort of waiver, you know, saying that I won't speak about it. I'll sign a confidentiality waiver. And they told her no. She is not allowed to see it. So then that tells you something. You know, if you can't see your assessment for your state as a state board member, that's crazy. But because the, the truth of it is, is that the assessment will govern what is taught in your schools. 
So, you know, don't be fooled by a set of standards. I mean, I'm not fooled by ours because they're exactly the common core. They didn't even try so much to do that. Um, but you know what I'm saying? Like, you can have your Texas standards, but whatever the Texas assessment is, that's what's going to be taught in your schools. Well, and it's interesting when you look at the the strategies and tactics, if you will, to get around, it, we do have solid standards here in Texas. Um, we do have an issue with process standards or process, they, the process standards that they put in at each um, grade level at the beginning um, for math. But our challenge, and I don't know, Erin, if um, in your state, if the these trade associations and these, like the Texas, uh, the State Board of, um, I'm sorry, the Texas Association of School Administrators, the Texas Association yep. of School Board, all of mm -hmm. these associations, they're the ones who are lobbying our legislators to pass legislation to basically go around the Texas standards and implement these new learning standards. And they, they actually... They actually set up this high performance consortium where they were implementing these um, new these learning standards, and it was all those progressive teaching strategies and mm -hmm. see what's what's interesting is they're afraid I think of the end of course exams because as and Jane, you wrote a great article about this. They don't want those knowledge-based exams because they'll be exposed um, for, for sure. Teaching is that correct, Jane? Um, yeah, I think that is exactly correct. ACT is now um, abolishing some of the exams that it's it's given in the past for college readiness because they might show, or at least my speculation is that they might show that. Um, there's a problem that kids don't know what they used to know as far as college readiness goes. But I wanted to address one thing. You were you were asking um, why they do this when they know it doesn't work. You know, you just look at history and, and you know this doesn't work. I think that there are two aspects to that. One is ideological and one is financial. The the ideological component that that I have come to realize over the last four years is that the public education establishment throughout the country is monolithic. It doesn't matter if you are in the most conservative state in the country or the most liberal state. You can be in Alabama, you can be in New York, you can be in California. All the people at your State Department of Education believe the same thing because they all have advanced degrees in education. They all went to the education schools that are dominated by theories developed by people like Bill Ayers. And they learn this stuff. They learn this progressive nonsense, and they believe it. They are true believers. They're not out trying to hurt children. They believe that this is the way to go. And because they are true believers, and obviously I'm not talking about everybody. I mean, in Texas you had Robert Scott, who was you know, a, a wonderful education commissioner and, and did what he could, but he admits people in his agency that he had no control over were you know, of this ilk. So, so all of these people are true believers. So they will be called to testify before a state board of ed or a legislative um, committee, 
and they will, because they're true believers, they think it's important to get this stuff done uh, for the good of everybody. And so if they need to lie, they will lie. I have sat through hearings, um, one in Georgia, where two and a half hours into the hearing, after all the Georgia DOE people were talking, and I've, I wrote down the time. I looked at my watch to see what time it was when they made their first true statement. But they believe that that it's the end justifies the means. So they'll say whatever they need to say, and the legislators and State Board of Ed members believe them because they consider them the objective experts. They don't realize they have an agenda. They don't realize that they have a, a prejudice, a slant to everything that they're doing. So when people like... Um, like Aaron or like me or like the other people, you know, Dr. Stotsky, Dr. Milgram, those people come and talk to them um, and tell them what's going on, and then the state board, I mean the state Department of Ed people will get up and say, oh, no, that's not true. Don't worry about it. We have it under control. And the legislators will say, oh, good. We don't have to worry about that. So, so that is, that's the ideological component of it. The second component, I think, is, is the financial one, which is that we know planned economies don't work. And we know that they are disastrous. You cannot look at any part of history and not understand that. But they don't work generally. They work quite well for some people because some people make a lot of money out of them. And the people who make a lot of money out of them are the big politically powerful organizations, the companies that have a lot of influence, a lot of pull with the Chamber of Commerce, who know all of the legislators, who can take the governor golfing. Um, and, and when those people say, gosh, we really need for, for you to, to revamp the education system so that you send us workers we don't have to train, that will save us a lot of money, um, then the, the legislators say, oh, okay, well, that, that makes a lot of sense. This, is a, this will be pragmatic. We'll, just, we'll, we'll work it out. And, and this is where the conservatives get sucked in because they, they think, well, this is pro-business. Well, it may be pro-business, but it's not pro-free market, and those are two very different things. So, so there's a lot of uh, there are a lot of things wrapped up um, in this that, and it's it's not new. It's it's a repetition of things that have happened before. We had mercantilism in you know 300 years ago in Europe. We had um, fascism in in 1930s Europe, and by fascism I don't mean you know anti-Semitic um, pogroms. I mean uh, the public-private partnerships, the, the government working in concert with the big corporations. That's what fascism was. And that's, that worked out quite well. For, there were a lot of people made a lot of money off of that. It was not good for society as a whole, but some people did well. So, so it's just, it's, it's all, you know, everything that goes around comes around. Well, and it's, it's really interesting when, when you look at, um, what happened in the late 60s, early 70s, what happened in the late 80s and early 90s, the pushback against, you know, the, the outcome-based education, the, the school-to-work education, it was moms and dads and grassroots people who said, no, we're not going to allow this. Let's talk before we get off the call a little bit about um, not only pressuring our, you know, U.S. senators and congressmen to not um, pass ESEA, take this down 
to a local level, a local school board level, what can, and I had a great conversation today with a dad who we were talking about our local school district, how do we pressure um, the local administration um, and educate other school board members as to what this big picture is um, and I'll give you an example of in our local school district, Argyle, Texas, um, we found out, because I did a public information request on uh, to the district of any third parties that they have executed uh, contracts with where that third party has access to our children and teachers' personal data. And what I got back, was the contract that they had um, with, in Texas, we have 20 education service centers that service our school districts. And um, just by the way, it's those 20 education service centers, the directors formed a nonprofit organization and they were the ones that owned the copyright to the C-Scope um, framework and assessment. It's the same business model as you look at the NGA and uh, that they own the copyright. In Texas, it was our education service centers. Well, now this uh, Region 11 contract with our local school district provides all of these um, <laughs> programs where they're basically uh, collecting the data on the students and creating an individual portfolio on a child um, and, and providing that back to the teachers um, so that they can use all these computer systems that they're developing um, to, to do these formative, and it says it in the contract, it's these formative assessments so they can be monitoring, creating this individual portfolio. Interestingly enough, that contract is not um, binding until September 1st, 2015. So I have um, requested that our school board put this as an agenda item um, on the next meeting and stop this contract from happening. It's our local school districts that um, they may not have the authority to control curriculum, but they do have the power of the purse in not um, approving the funding. Jane, is that a viable way to fight back locally? Um, yes, I think that that is very, very effective um, to get the documents because nobody has done that. In decades, nobody has ever actually asked what's going on, and many local board members don't ever ask to see the documents. So that is, is very important. Um, I would give as an example, um, one of the, the largest school district in Georgia is Gwinnett County, and there has been a little cadre of, of um, parents and grandparents who have gone to every school board meeting and have made presentations at every school board meeting. This is what's going on. Look at what's in these textbooks. Look at at what's happening with this or that, and and they have got eventually they started to get press about it. 
um, and they drove the, the local board nuts. But they've had an effect. They really have um, because the, the board is, is being forced to, to address some of the things that they're doing um, that, and that these people are reporting that they're saying. But it's very labor-intensive. I mean, you, have to, you can't just send a letter you know, or make one phone call. That's unfortunate. Um, it may mean that we get good people to run for these offices if they're elected school boards because so many times people, even on the local boards, are just co-opted. They're told sort of what their their superintendent may kind of direct everything that happens in the district, and and they just rubber stamp. I don't know how that how it is in Texas or in other states, but yes, the the kind of thing that you did is very effective. Get the documents and get it put on the agenda. And usually there will be a procedure. Um, you need to check and see how long in advance you have to sign up, how long you have to speak, that kind of thing, but you just have to be persistent. And when we're talking about um, the town hall meetings, or if you talk to to your um, federal officials when they're home, um, I think that it's good to focus on a few points. One would be you should oppose any bill that mandates particular type of tests, that mandates testing and that mandates particular type of tests. You should oppose any bill that has um, requirements about standards that they have to be aligned to this or that or whatever because when you have that, it doesn't matter whether there's some provision in there that says, oh, the secretary may not dictate standards. The secretary won't have to. It's written in other parts of the bill. And you should oppose any bill that just relies on FERPA, on the, the Federal Privacy Act, which has been gutted. It needs to have a privacy component. So if you just just boil it down to a few things like that that they can understand and then, you know, long-term, we'll work on educating them about the rest of it. Well, and, it, and it's interesting because, and that's where there's got to be local people who are willing to do that, kind of that legwork, if you will. Um, and it can't, and that can't come from an organization or or one person. And And I'll tell you, it's interesting because, the person that the the individuals who um, reported me to Facebook for impersonating myself, what <laughs> um, <laughs> they crazy. What the problem is, and and it's this doing this kind of work that they don't like. I had two personal Facebook pages, one under Alice Huggins Linehan and one under Alice Linehan. And I had reached um, 5,000 people at each one. And we were setting up these closed Facebook groups uh, where people were taking this on in their local community and and having an effect. And the woman who um, was a part of making this uh, Facebook claim um, is actually a former um, local school board member in Crowley ISD, and she didn't like it. She, she works with Battleground Texas and Texas Freedom Network. They don't like people like us organizing and, um, and empowering each other to do this kind of work. And so I just want to give people a warning. Um, they're going to come after us when we do this kind of work, but there, I believe, now is a very um, important time because there are enough of us who 
understand the big picture that we can have an impact. Um, and and when they come into the, this one woman came into the Argyle PTA page and started questioning me. Um, I know the people in Argyle. I know the moms and dads, and they know that she was uh, attacking me. And that's where I tell people, I can write a blog post, I can put out information, but your friends and neighbors don't know and love me. They know and love you. So we need people in local, in local school districts doing this kind of work. Um, would you agree, Erin? Oh, I mean, I, I think I, I absolutely would agree. And, you know, I think one of the differences between, you know, when out, um, outcome-based education, you know, when the parents fought that back, they were able to do so because their local school boards had more power back then. You know, you have to really watch legislation that takes powers away from the local school boards and centralizes it, even regionalizes it. Like, think about the education service centers you were talking about. Who are they accountable to? Absolutely nobody, right? So when you have legislation that empowers them sort of over your local school board, it makes it harder for parents to do what they have done in the past because they don't have that direct path. But, but the path still does exist. And, you know, if you think about it, you can pick off people one by one. So maybe in, your, in, in the state of Texas, you pick one politician or, or one school board, state school board member who has, has been particularly awful um, in the respects that we care about. And you put all of your efforts around getting rid of that one and booting them out of office. And it sets an example because it's all they care about. If the people who are making these bad decisions are office holders, the only things that motivate them are money, which most of us don't have to, you know, combat against like a chamber of commerce. So what you do is you have, you have to mobilize people to just pool your resources to make an example of one of them. And when, when they start seeing that, then it starts to put a little fear in them and it actually gains you more access and more power to the others. I know that's it's sort of a not exactly always so easy to do, but I think that because we're spread thin, right, and we're, our resources are spread thin, you almost have to pool them and go after specific targets to try and make an impact. You know, when they see a big dog get beat down, <laughs> you know, they, they tend to pay attention. Well, and it's, it's interesting. Um, <laughs> we have that one uh, big dog in Texas. His name's Thomas Ratliff. Um, and his dad, yep. former Lieutenant Governor uh, Bill Ratliff, who was instrumental in in setting up the legislation over the last 20 years to take that power away from the local school board and um, put it in the hands of that unelected superintendent. And I think that when you start looking at the strategies and tactics that they're using from state to state, um, and that's why I think this conference call is so, um, has been for me anyway, so enlightening because I learn about things happening in other states and then you're like, oh, well, that's what's happening here or that's what's happening here and they're going to use that strategy in another state. and. And we'll close with this. That's one of the things that I wanted to to address is as states pull out of 
Common Core national standards and they're rebranded, looking at other states and strategies and tactics that they're using is is key. Um, if if this e uh, if the ESEA is reauthorized and they they send something to Obama, which we need to work to not happen, but if that happens, it's the battle's got to be at the local level and at the state level. Would you agree, Jane? Uh, yes, there are there are ways that that the states can fight back. I mean, at some point, <laughs> we may just have some civil disobedience going on um, by state officials saying, no, you don't have the authority to do that, and we're not going to do that. Um, one of the problems in, in the, these pieces of legislation is that even though they have these provisions saying oh, the Secretary of Education may not do this, that, or the other thing, there is no enforcement mechanism for the states. So they can't, for example, file suit if if um, he does overstep his bounds, which Arne Duncan did. He overstepped his bounds under No Child Left Behind and, and essentially said, so what are you going to do about it? Um, but, yes, it, we're at the point that I don't know that we're going to change things on the federal level. We're just going to try. We have to stop the worst stuff that's happening, and the worst stuff is these bills that are coming out of Congress right now. But then it is going to to be back to the states. The states are going to have to decide, yes, we are going to man up and to do what we are supposed to do, what we are empowered to do under the Constitution. And if that means we give up this federal money, which actually isn't as much as most people think it is, and we fire all the people in the state departments of education who do nothing other than administer federal grants, then that's what we'll do. That's that's what it's going to come down to. We have to, to stop voluntarily enslaving ourselves to the federal government. But, you know, until – I mean, honestly, in my, my humble opinion, fighting the ESA legislation is the most important thing. It, it really is because as much as many of us believe that the in states' rights and the power of, you know, local – um, control and and the power that it it should have the, the power that it does have that is often ignored. It, they literally have their full attention turned towards the federal government. Whatever comes out of that ESCA reauthorization, if it passes, it will be years and years before the consequences do really come out. Because I think that sometimes people in Congress are are ignorant on the fact that they're their bills have, when they are implemented, they have consequences, right? Things happen because of them. And when the things that happen because of them turn out to have negative consequences, it's years down the road. So really they don't care, right? They don't care because they may be onto a different position. Your, your state superintendent may know in the back of his mind, this isn't going to work, but you know what? I'm going to have to do it because this is the way I'm going to get my federal money. And before the years happen and the years pass where we're finally recognizing it's a disaster, which is a re- if you look at the history, I mean, it's always that way, right? One repeated disaster after the next repeated disaster. They don't care because they've moved on. So whatever happens out there, they're going to implement it. And, and you, can, you can fight against it as hard as you want. And, and sometimes, hopefully, there are pockets of success. But I used to really believe fighting it at the state level was the way to go, but after so many years of doing so, I recognize that it is really all about that federal money and what they want them to do, they will do it. So putting the energy into stopping that really sends a message. I mean, if we could stop the ESCA reauthorization from passing both houses, which I think is actually a really 
I think that there's a strong promise of that because whatever comes out of that conference committee is going to have to be something that has to completely just the members of the House of Representatives, it has to be something that they would never be able to support and go back to their districts and win another election. So I think that is where the promise lies. And I, I, I think that only from my own experience in my state of Indiana, I mean, other states may be a little bit better, but fighting it at the federal level and stopping ESEA from passing, you know, the, at least the House of Representatives, it would send such a strong message. Because then, you know what, they're all planning for it. The State Department's of Ed, I went to the Indiana State Board of Ed meeting the other day, and they're talking about how the ESDA reauthorization is going to do A, B, and C, and how they're aligning their products because they're so confident it's going to pass. So if we can stop that, it, it shakes the tree a bit. Ah, Another well, thing that I, can happen uh, – I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead, Jane. No, go ahead, Jane. Uh, uh, another thing that can happen on the on the state level, and this is – maybe a little bit easier to do than trying to change all the standards to get rid of Common Core, is to do smaller targeted bills. Um, for example, a digital transparency bill that says, it, it can be one page, that just says uh, before a school implements any digital learning um, platform and you define that, the school must explain to the parents how it works, what kind of data it it compiles, what it does with the data, what the privacy policies are, that sort of thing. And so you have that bill and you introduce it, and then what will happen is that that lobbyists from Washington, from Google, and from a lot of other you know ed tech companies will swoop in and they'll kill it. However, um, you've at least made your first step towards educating people. Okay, here was this bill that was a, a who could possibly object to this kind of bill and and suddenly all of these people who were running education said, no, we can't do this. We can't have transparency. We can't tell the parents what's going on. Well, why not? And so it opens up the conversation. Um, so so maybe smaller things like that could have some effect as well. Well, yeah, because then then you know what? Then the, the legislators who vote who voted against that have to answer to something. And it's a good thing exactly. to bore them on and say, look, hey, guys, if you can find a good candidate to run against them, you can say, look, this guy voted against this. What's his problem? We don't need guys like this. We need a guy like, you know, whoever you have to oppose that person. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's interesting. I had uh, I was going back and forth today through text message to some of our grassroots folks across the state about this situation with um, Attorney General Ken Paxton. And we were saying how frustrating it is when you have people that you're normally allies with, you know, Republicans, conservative Republicans, um, who are investing in companies like this, who are profiting off this shift to this digital learning. And, And this friend of mine said, well, isn't it interesting that you have all of these people who are running for office and they have in their campaign coffers millions of dollars for a job that only pays six hundred dollars a year a month. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we have a um, uh, a friend with the Pioneer Institute in Boston, uh, which is a, a very good, solid think tank and has been very active against the Common Core. His name is Jamie Gass, and Jamie says that with with Common Core, the conflicts of interest have conflicts of interest. It is the most 
corrupt, um, incestuous cesspool I have ever seen. Uh, you've got the guy who is the, the head of the um, Massachusetts um, Department of Education who is the, the um, president or whatever they call him of PARC, one of the Common Core federally funded tests. And so now he's participating in the decision about whether Massachusetts will use PARC instead of its own test. So no conflict of interest there. There's a lady who is or was, I don't know if she's still on the, the Board of Elementary and Secondary Education in Louisiana, who is employed by the Council of Chief State School Officers, which is one of the two owners and developers of Common Core. So she's making decisions about whether Louisiana will use Common Core when she's employed by the uh, one of the owners. So th this kind of stuff just goes on all the time. And as someone said, education is the wild, wild west when it comes to investing because there are so many ed tech companies out there. All of them are going to transform education. No, they don't have any evidence of how they're going to do that or whether it's going to work or whether it's worth turning over our children's brains to them, but it'll make somebody a lot of money. And it's just like they don't have to worry about the consequences. That's why they keep changing the test, right? So nobody can see those outcomes for a while. But eventually, yeah. you know, things boil to the surface. But they don't care because they'll, they'll walk away with their pockets lined with our taxpayer dollars, and they don't care. And that's why, you know, it's so important for people to stay on it. Another thing I was just thinking about on the phone is, you know, if you know parents who have children in public schools, they need to go and ask to see the data on their child and ask to see who their child's data has been shared with because that is the they have to show you your local school um, has to show you who, with whom your child's data has been shared and I think that's something that if you had enough parents in a district um, you know make that request and get that information and you banded them all together and you went into a state board of ed meeting and you got on the agenda to talk about you know data sharing with student information and you had all these parents show up with this, with this information, I think that would be powerful. Well, and you're exactly right. You're exactly right. And that's, where, that's what's happening, I believe, across. I know that people are getting engaged in Texas. I know in other states as well it's happening. Um, and that's really the, the hope that we have. When you look at this big corrupt picture of, of this transformation in education and you think why how, how can we stop this and it's really going to be about everyday folks uh, like us who who organize locally and um, and then as you were saying Aaron um, come together to fight these ba these battles federally so let's go ahead and close out the call and I'm going to give each of you an opportunity to if you have you know, just kind of a closing statement and make sure that um, you covered everything that you wanted to cover tonight. So we'll start with um, Jane, uh, let you close out uh, with a closing statement. Okay. Um, it, it just occurred to me that one thing that we haven't mentioned is the presidential campaign. Um, uh -huh. And especially if you've got uh, listeners in Iowa or New Hampshire or South Carolina, um, and they go to these um, to town halls or to meetings or you know coffee clashes with the, the presidential candidates. 
we need to try to get these people to consider education a big issue. I know that there are a lot of issues out there, but education is a huge one. And the person who figures out what this big picture is and comes down on the right side of it and decides to lead on this will be a hero to millions of people immediately. So we need to, to make sure that they start injecting this, this issue into the campaign. Um, but I think that as far as the federal legislation goes, which is what we're dealing with um, most immediately here, it's just important to stop them from doing this. Um, these two bills, one of them is over 700 pages, the other one is over 900 pages. It doesn't take that many pages to unwind the federal role in education. So if these, we have these phone book sized bills um, supposedly giving us um, a conservative alternative to No Child Left Behind, there's something wrong. So the, the federal officials need to have their feet held to the fire. They need to understand that if they vote in favor of this thing when it comes out of conference committee and it goes to and it comes out in a form that the president will sign they are going to be held accountable they got a pass on common core because that didn't come out of congress they never voted on common core but they are voting on this and they will be held accountable great great you are right and Aaron well i would you know just stemming off what Jane said, you know, a lot of people are under this false impression that that both of these bills independently will undo Common Core, that it will prevent the Secretary from imposing Common Core, it will free states from Common Core. It absolutely does not, because each state, when they apply to um, the Secretary for what they call a state plan, to be to qualify right for ESEA funded programs, they submit a state plan, and the secretary, both under NCLB and under both of the bills, the House and the Senate bill, he still has the final authority. Okay, so there's wording in both bills that say that the standards have to support the purpose of graduating children ready for college or careers. That's the same, well, ready for post-secondary education or the workforce without remediation. That's the same language as they did for college and career readiness, which is how the secretary forced states into adopting Common Core under the waivers, right? So when the secretary still has the final authority to say whether or not a state standard support the purpose of the bill, why would he interpret it any other way? He's already told us. You know, they're, they're not um, unclear about their intentions or what they want, right? They've already done it. They've already said, here is what we believe. Here are these standards and here are the types of assessments that we believe are necessary in order for children to graduate from high school prepared for post-secondary um, education or the career without remediation. That is already established within the U.S. Department of Education. So there is no way any same thinking person would believe that with that same language in both of these bills and for sure included in any Frankenstein monster bill that comes out of the hashing that will go on in conference committee, that this U.S. Secretary of Education would ever interpret those words to mean anything else but the Common Core. So I think a lot of Republicans are supporting it because they think it's going to get rid of Common Core. But with the Secretary of Education having the final authority 
absolute final authority to say whether or not the state plan submitted by each state to qualify for grants under ESCA, whether or not they have met those requirements is completely up to the U.S. Secretary of Education. So another point is really, you know, if, if, if these politicians believe that this bill, whatever it may look like in the end or whichever, you know, w- within the bills that were passed in each house, if they really believe that it got rid of Common Core, why is it that the National Governors Association, the Chief Counsel of State School Officers, Arne Duncan himself, support it? After, after hammering states over the head for years through waivers, race to the top, you know, states say they don't want to do Common Core. They, you know, the U.S. Secretary of Education has threatened to pull all their Title I funding, all of these threats, and all of a sudden, just out of the blue, he's just fine with states being able to get out of Common Core. I mean, who believes that, right? So the, the proof is in the pudding. You know, if they're all supporting this bill, there's no way that it's undoing Common Core. So my, my advice would just be to make sure that people understand that this bill does not undo Common Core, and it's evidenced by the support for the bill from those who are financially, ideologically tied to the state's implementation of Common Core. Well, thank you so much, Erin, and thank you, Jane. And, you know, these these conference calls, um, they've been done from, you know, uh, drive uh, into McDonald's and do them on the side of the road uh, <laughs> <to> <laughs> each week. Um, but to you know, being in a in a in front of my computer where I have everything. So, um, but one of the things that has happened over this year, um, over a year, we've had people who listen to these calls um, each week. They're on the line with us, and then we have people listen to the archives, which have had you know over fifty thousand hits, and so we are having impact. But that impact has to be followed um, by action. And so Jane and Erin, you have helped us so much in understanding um, from a federal level, especially um, the danger of this legislation. And I just I thank you both for all of your work. Um, and we will continue to fight the battle. I did get a text message from um, Lynn Taylor, and um, Lynn has been doing some extensive work um, in the HEA, what's coming next with the higher ed education and how um, Lamar Alexander is marrying all this. And um, she has an article coming out tomorrow that um, also goes into what you were talking about, Erin, um, and what you've written about with the WIOA. Um, and how all of this is connected. And so um, it, we're all in a different place on the journey in figuring all of this out, but um, it's, it's taking the journey that matters because it's our children and our grandchildren who are at risk. So thank you both so much, and um, thank you to all of our listeners, and we are going to close out as we do each week in prayer. Lord, we just... Praise and thank you for the gift of this network that is being built, for the gift of the people who are doing so much extensive research and who are on the battle line, um, whether it's in Washington or Georgia or Texas or Indiana, um, 
we have people willing to stand, and I just thank you for that gift, and I ask you to be with us as we take this information that we've learned tonight. Give us wisdom and give us courage to fight this battle at a local level, a state level, and a federal level. We ask you to watch over all of our children as they are the ones who are impacted by what's coming out of this legislation. We ask you to watch them in their classrooms as the school year starts in September. Give, give them the protection that they need as the adults and the parents fight this battle. We ask you this in your name we pray. Amen. And thank you once again and have a great week and we'll be back next week. Same time, same place. Have a great week. Bye-bye. Thanks, Alice. Keep up the good work. Thank you. Thank you. You too.